You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this episode, I'm excited to introduce an exciting new collaboration for the first time. Um, We've decided to bring The Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast together with the excellent Arms Control Wonk Podcast, which is the most offensively wonky podcast on ballistic missiles, nuclear weapons, any kind of WMD, you name it. Um, It's hosted by Jeffrey Lewis, the founding publisher of Arms Control Wonk, and Scott LaFoy, who is the producer of the podcast, normally also joined by Aaron Stein, but he doesn't join us on this episode. So I joined the Arms Control Wonk guys to go over technical details related to North Korea's new Hwasong-14 ICBM, Hwasong-12 IRBM, and we talk about a few other fun things, including some never-before-revealed details about North Korea's various missile systems. We also end the episode with a discussion about Russian early warning and why the Russians are denying that North Korea successfully tested an ICBM. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, keep on listening, because you've got about an hour of missile wonkery coming right at you, courtesy of Arms Control Wonk and The Diplomat. Enjoy. Uh, Right as everybody was starting to worry about the Carl Vincent strike group, you guys remember that? That was fun. You are listening to the Arms Control Wonk Podcast, the leading podcast on arms control, disarmament, and nonproliferation. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, the founding publisher of the Arms Control Wonk blog and a scholar at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And I'm Scott LaFoy, imagery and ballistic missile analyst. And I'm Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat Magazine and host of The Diplomat Podcast. And this is a special edition of the Arms Control Wonk podcast, which will also be released as a Diplomat podcast. I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, it's nice to collaborate with you guys. Longtime fan, first time participant, and happy to share the Arms Control Wonk experience with my listeners. Yeah, you're probably going to have to warn them that we're going to get really, really kind of wonky. It's nerdy over here. Very, very, very so. We have been big fans of yours because you are getting all the good scoops. You've given us all kinds of incredible details about North Korea's missile launches uh, throughout the spring. And so we really thought that rather than just steal all the things you say, uh, we would have you on. And then we could talk about them so we could figure out first, how the hell are you getting this information? But second, to get your perspective on things, because, you know, while I think you're very modest about what you do and don't know, I mean, I, there's nobody else I'm following, uh, you know, other than, you know, my beloved inner circle, you know, people like Schmerler and, and Scott, uh, who's doing as well. Yeah, um, you know, there are things that I can say and things that I can't say, but I'll, but I'll do my best to uh, lay out some, uh, some details. And, and yeah, I think there are a few things that I can share today on the pod that haven't previously been reported on the Hwasong uh, 14 ICBM, which is obviously the topic of the day in July, but also uh, the Hwasong 12, um, which uh, was first tested in April. And I guess that was kind of one of my first reports where I confirmed that it wasn't the KN-17 Scud that people were talking about in April that caused some confusion. Um, yeah, so happy to, happy to talk about that range of, of topics. So yeah, we thought we'd start off with talking about the Hwasong-12, the KN-17, which is not the same thing as the anti-ship, or at least the terminally guided ballistic missile that we've been misidentifying as the KN-17. For a while, you're the one who got us that correction. It's not my fault, but I'm still going to sit here in shame. Yeah, and you know, guys, to be fair, I did write an article in early April about the KN-17 anti-ship ballistic missile, or what looked like an anti-ship ballistic missile, though I said it probably wasn't. And I guess later on it did turn out that they weren't doing that. When they ultimately tested that scud, they didn't put it in KPN camo like they showed it to us at the parade. Uh, Or I guess they didn't show it at the parade in KPN camo, but that was one of of the things we were anticipating could have been a tell that they had the system. But anyways, the KN-17 is the Hwasong-12, which is the new intermediate-range ballistic missile that they first successfully test-fired on May 14th, just as China was having its big Belt and Road Forum, which was fun. And uh, they actually tested that missile for the first time in April, three times. And um, I know we'll maybe talk about this later on the pod, but North Korea just dumped a bunch of images from the Hwasong-14 ICBM concert where they showed us some of the failed flight testing footage from the Hwasong-12 testing in April. I think they released pictures from at least the first test at Shimpo, 
which I think was April 4th, right as uh, right as everybody was starting to worry about the Carl Vincent strike group. You guys remember that? That was fun. And then um, <laughs> later in April, when they did a flight test from Pukchang. Um, and so all three of those tests failed. And I guess the first thing I can maybe talk about is just... Um, you know, what happened at each of those three tests, which is uh, information that so far hasn't been reported publicly. I haven't put this in any of my articles yet, um, but but it's interesting. And, you know, listening to your most recent episode uh, that you guys did with Aaron talking about the Hwasong 14 ICBM, I think there's some data points here that might inform some of the conversation about fueling, um, how they're actually prepping the Hwasong 14's first stage, and, uh, and just, I guess, you know, where they are with this program more broadly. Um, so... That first test that they did out of Shimpo, um, if, um, you know, they exhibited a decent amount of success. Like they got it off the ground, they flew it to a range of 60 kilometers with an apogee of 189 kilometers. That information was public. I think Paycom released that in a statement, and um, we got reports then out of um, out of a few other places that the uh, the reentry body ended up pinwheeling or cartwheeling. Um, and that's all correct. So all of that happened. Um, but what we uh, don't know is if the North Koreans uh, cut the engine early for some reason in that test, um, since that wasn't close to the missile's full performance, obviously, uh, before right. reentry. So that's one question um, that's there. So the first test, I think, you know, they, sh- they showed us pictures of that. Uh, there are pictures that they recently released from that concert where you see a fully erected Hwasong 12 on a firing table with what looks like C in the background. So I'm pretty sure it's a Shinpo test. Yeah, but, I, you know, I you might that. Ask, that was just incredible with like the water back there. Yeah, yeah. that was a nice tell. Um, but we'll be dropping all of the pictures that we talk about. Schmerler did some nice screen caps of these and put them up on Flickr. So I'm going to try and grab all these and put them in the show notes so people can follow along. That would be awesome. Um, so, you know, attentive listeners who might remember that two of the Hwasong 12 tests took place out of Shinpo might ask, how do I know the test that we saw pictures of was the first test and not the second test? And I'll tell you why. Um, so the second test is probably my favorite of the Hwasong 12 failed tests, because what happened, um, or at least um, what I'm told happened, is uh, that the erected Hwasong 12 um, missile, once it was um, ostensibly on the firing table, um, tipped over <laughs> and exploded. Man. Kablooey. Tipped over and exploded. Like, We've talked about this as a as a specific issue that they've been running risks at by having all these like dudes so close to their tells, but not the deadbeat dad tell or deadbeat dad te. Mm-hmm. Wow. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think that's a that's a pretty interesting data point. I mean, you guys were talking about you know the Hwasong fourteen airframe and whether it could survive, I guess, you know, standing up fully fueled um and you know i mean this might be suggestive of like you know they've tried to do this and this is what they're working with and especially like when you think about the strategy stuff and preemption the fact that they showed us a picture of a Hwasong 12 in a tunnel um yesterday as well um you know maybe they are seriously thinking of horizontally fueling these guys and rolling them out all heavy and trying to stand them up and this is one of the risks they run run. yeah well i mean they've kind of seated up close i mean you want to talk about that yeah well one of the things that just for listeners to catch them up um you know in both of these last two tests the, uh, of the Hwasong 12 and the Hwasong 14, for which we have pictures, the North Koreans went out of their way to show guys in orange bunny suits fueling the missiles in a horizontal position in the checkout building, and then depicting the test as though it drives out to the site, erects the missile, the transporter leaves, and then it launches. And so, you know, the big question we've been having is, is that just propaganda? Um, or is that really something that they would do? And, you know, there are obviously there are advantages to doing that. Um, you know, the Soviets and the Iraqis both pre-fueled their scuds, but those are so much smaller. Um, and so, you know, like we've had this really robust debate about whether it's physically possible, whether the airframes would hold up. Uh, and if you were the North Koreans, whether you would decide that the risk of the airframes uh, occasionally breaking it, you know, that might actually, even though that might be very, very risky, it's kind of also risky to, like, hang out in the open uh, with all your fuel trucks while the U.S. Air Force is trying to kill you. Um, mm-hmm. So it was one of these really interesting choices where, you know, the North Koreans say they're doing this thing. We're not sure it's possible. And by possible, what we mean is we're not sure it's a good idea. But, you know, they're, as you say, they're in this really, like, hard position of trying to make choices about survivability. So your data point, I mean, I... You know, I don't know what you think, um, but the fact that one toppled does seem to me to be 
lightly suggestive of the fact that they really fueled it inside. Yeah, I mean, also suggestive to me of that. Um, we don't know either way. I mean, you know, what you just said actually is kind of getting me ahead of myself, but I do want to make sure I get to this on the podcast, which is, again, you guys talked about some, on the last episode, uh, that 70-minute claim that was reported and a bunch of websites, including InfoWars, ended up running that, talking about why we didn't just take a God knows what ordinance they were thinking of using. Why don't we just take a shot at Kim Jong-un and kill him? Um, so I just want to clarify. Just so okay, I was in a meeting where somebody was suggesting rods from God. So it's, you know, ah, it's not going to be any worse yeah, than real, that. Yeah. Yeah. Throwback Thursday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, yeah. So that 70 minute claim, um, really, it comes from a data point that the United States managed to procure at T minus 70 minutes to launch. Right. So they saw a fully erected Hwasong 14 and 70 minutes later, they detected launch. Um, and not only the United States detected launch, right? I mean, everybody in the um, in the region, well, maybe not the Russians, but we can talk about that later. Um, the South Koreans, and the Japanese all detected launch at that time. So that's where that 70 minute um, figure comes from. Oh, so, uh, so it this was, wasn't it was an identification that was 70 minutes before launch. This it's it's now morphed into, um, you know, there's a magic fairy drone hovering over the thing for 70 minutes. But that's that's right. not it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's like, nope, there's no uh, RQ-9 just kind of hovering over Kim Jong-un while he smokes a cigarette. Um, <laughs> By the way, I thought that was, I mean, I'm sure you're proud of your serious work, but nothing you have ever done has made me quite as happy as you identifying Kim Jong-un chain-smoking in close proximity to more than 30 tons of highly volatile propellant. Yeah, yeah, that was, I had to I had to look at that a few times before I was confident tweeting it, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I mean, especially given what I just told you about, you know, the fact that they're putting these liquid fuel missiles in tunnels where those fumes get to pack together nicely if they're horizontally fuming them. And they've had issues with missiles toppling over and blowing up. So the fact that they just have him standing there as they're erecting this damn thing and he's smoking, uh, you know, self, self-inflicted self regime change might be a thing soon. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I... I'm glad to hear you say that about the data point because... Um, that 70-minute thing, you know, I was listening to CNN, and there's this kind of discussion about how, you know, the the, the U.S. is watching them fuel it, and it yeah, was just that. this kind of embellished story, um, and I, I kind of didn't want to, like, totally, like, throw the reporter under the bus, but it, it, it sounded like maybe somebody had, um, the story got better by with each telling. Mm -hmm. And like, look, like when you, uh, you know, I think the discussion you guys had on the last pod about, about the 70 minutes, what it tells us about feeling and stuff, that was all like on the point. I mean, you know, one of the other factors is if we're thinking about the fact that they want us to know that they're horizontally feeling these guys, you know, standing up a missile 70 minutes before launch and then just revealing that there's no signatures of fuel trucks to be found anywhere. I mean, that's also, you know, going to be telling. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't know either way that there weren't any signatures of fuel trucks, but that is, again, a possibility that if they're really if they really want us to know that they can fuel these guys in caves and tunnels and hangars and then roll them out to fire with a relatively little warning probably probably less than 70 minutes during actual wartime and probably not on a firing table you know the tells would be expendable at that point probably but um but yeah that might be you know one of the things that they were going for with that move that's something i'd be really interested if if any follow up data comes on cuz i'm still a little more skeptical i think than than jeffrey and others are about the the horizontal fueling just because no one like that's not really done for liquid propellant missiles which isn't right. to say it can't be done but that just is such an unusual i i guess it's not unusual i guess it would probably be a unique capability um that that'd be interesting it'd be surprising and just so so risky do you want me to talk about the third Hwasong 12 failure? Yes. Uh, Yeah. What was the date on the second one again? The second one was the one that tipped over and blew up. That was in Shimpo a few days later. I think that was right as the Carl Vincent strike group arrived. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, we also, we all had that, I guess, weird bout of, at least I had it, the weird bout of confirmation bias that they did test an anti-ship missile because we had this carrier group that was supposedly going up oh, and everybody's yeah. like, oh, well, of course, if they're testing something out of Shimpo. Yeah, they tested something out of Shimpo. There's a U.S. carrier group up there, and we saw something that looked like a maneuverable, you know, scud that could be an anti-ship missile. Well, this is probably what the KN-17 is. So I will fully admit that I fall for that. Um, well, there was so also yeah, the reporting that the thing tested out of Shinpo was a scud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. I mean, that's yeah, that's source, what really source did say that. That's what yeah, that hammered me because then we went through and we looked at the um, the flight time, 
and yeah. the claimant had pinwheeled, and that's probably where confirmation bias kicked in, because we could come up with a scud scenario that mm. matched that, and then, then, we were, then we were off to the races to crazy town. Yeah, and I'm sure the North Koreans didn't mind that a bunch of people thought for a couple of weeks that they had a, I guess, a DF-16 kind of in the works. <laughs> um, well, but, they certainly uh, weren't correcting us, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, okay, so the third failed Hwasong 12 test. Uh, this one's also kind of interesting. Um, so it, uh, this was the one that took place out of Pukchang, uh, which is where I think that image of the Hwasong 12 tunnel uh, in the tunnel is, but, again, very early don't know for sure. Um, so, yeah, this one they launched. It flew for a bit. Um, I don't have the specific t- flight time. Uh, but then it ended up actually crashing somewhere south of Pukchang on, on North Korean territory. Um, so that suggests they had some problems with steering, navigation. Um, Hwasong-12 is really kind of their first big missile where they just used a skirt, right? Right. Um, so could be suggestive of problems with that or kind of just broader issues with the design. And then obviously May 14th, they, they ended up getting the successful flight test out, um, which comes, uh, you know, just, uh, just a couple months after that big uh, March 18th engine test. Um, and from there on, they, the next big flight test they do of a system with that kind of range and performance is their ICBM. So that's kind of the trajectory of the, of the Hwasong 12-based ICBM. Yeah, it was really kind of a a bummer for us that the ICBM came so quickly because we did this really careful analysis of the Hwasong-12. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we looked at the March 18th engine, we measured the Hwasong-12, which we estimate to be much bigger than other people are saying. Um, Came up with a mass estimate, uh, you know, did this analysis of its acceleration, uh, which was really tedious, um, and, you know, got a nice estimate of the power of the engine and kind of the, the, we knew that the airframe had to be lighter. And so we had this amazing article ready that basically said the Wasong 12 has demonstrated every technology North Korea needs for an ICBM. And it was sitting in the content management system for approval. Hey, <laughs> when they launched the ICBM. So, yeah, which well, I guess hey, they we should... did release. Yeah. They did release imagery of what looks like that June 22nd test that we didn't get any imagery of the liquid fuel um, second stage. Yes. Well, that's... So that. What do you think that is? I, we were thinking maybe two vernier engines. It looked like it, yeah. You could see two two plumes pretty clearly, um, but the pictures are so grainy that I wouldn't know where to begin. I'm not Schmerler. <laughs> <laughs> well, this actually is a good transition to talk about what that article was going to be about, what we've been waiting for for like two, three, four, fifteen years now, which is the Wasong 14. But I have a serious mm-hmm. question for you both. When do you think North Korea is going to have a missile that can reach the United States. <laughs> Sorry. This isn't what I signed up for with this podcast. <laughs> I'm just so tired of these articles that are like, no, we, like, I don't like fear-mongering and, like, the, the emphasis that, like, no, you're being ranged by a missile right now. But, like... You're being ranged by a missile right now. <laughs> yeah, like, everyone just cool it and... Everyone who's freaking out lived through the Cold War, probably. They can handle it. So, Ankit, why don't you tell us about the uh, Hwasong 14, which ruined... Yeah, sure. I guess, I mean, a place to begin with, I mean, what you just said, right? So everybody's been... I guess the early data points uh, that came out, um, like, you know, David Wright's analysis, which was excellent, uh, that came up with that 6,700 number. He was one of the first people to have that estimate out. So really, reporters, uh, as we tend to do, like to have things easy sometimes. So everybody saw that. It's like, hey, this guy's a uh, an accomplished scientist, and his estimate is probably very good and very correct, and it was. He did the right thing. He calculated the minimum energy trajectory from what they demonstrated with that flight test, and he got 6,700. So then people started talking about this as the Alaska strike system, right? And people were like, well, Hawaii doesn't quite get in that range well, when he started doing you know, all those Google Earth radius measurements, and you're like, oh, this just short, you know, stops just short of Hawaii, so they're never going to hit Pacific Command headquarters, like the North Koreans would build a missile that would just, you know, stop short of ranging Hawaii. But then obviously, you know, you guys did a bunch of analysis. And then um, again, one of the figures that I managed to get my hands on was that the U.S. currently assesses this as a 7,500 to 9,500 kilometer ICBM, which puts most of the West Coast metros, um, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., um, maybe San Diego. That's one of the targets that they're interested in, obviously, Pacific Fleet um, in range. Um, But, you know, you can round this up to 10,000, like you said last time on the podcast. 
And, you know, the North Koreans, again, going back to this concert, showed us a video of the Hwasong 12 ICBM just striking smack down the middle of Kansas. Um, this is, you know, they don't see this as an Alaska strike force missile. Um, this is this is intended to strike at counter value targets in the continental United States in the lower 48. Yeah, it was um, really strange for me to watch the reaction to um, David's initial estimate because we actually had been working really closely with David on our Hwasong 12 analysis. Mm -hmm. And when we finished, um, the first thing we started doing was sticking second stages on the Hwasong 12. And so I knew that David knew, right, that that if you put a second stage on the Hwasong 12, and Hwasong 14 is like way better than that. But even if you just did that, you were going to get way more than 7,000 kilometers. Um, Mm -hmm. And we had started at that point measuring the Hwasong 14, and it was clearly even bigger than the Hwasong 12. You know, it's not a... It's not that same missiles uh, as a first stage. And so, yeah, it was really weird because we had this kind of computer model that suggested it was so much longer. But I I mean, I think that the people just really don't want to believe. Um, and it's, it's really hard to persuade them otherwise. Yeah, it's this weird place where people don't want to believe that North Korean ICBMs are as good as they claim they are, but they want to believe that our missile defense systems are better than (laughs) most people claim they are. So it's this weird, like, confluence of cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias that just leads to this weird place where we just keep throwing uh, throwing money at missile defense and then just keep on being strategically patient on North Korea. Um, Again, anyways, I'm getting away from uh, missile wonkery into the policy discussion behind all this but but yeah i mean they have an icbm and they want to strike the lower 48 united states um with it in more time i mean i i think to get the working range from the u.s intelligence community for that missile so quickly is really incredible you know and and at least for me it's really useful because we try to replicate that process on our own right so if when that video hits YouTube, uh, the you know the people, um, <laughs> the people in Northern Virginia and uh, you know uh, Ohio and Alabama are all staring at that video, but we're staring at it too. And it just for me, it's incredible to you know we come up with our number and we're like, yeah, you know, ninety five hundred, maybe round up to ten, and then to get you, so like, yeah, ninety five hundred, that's that's about their number too. Um, I, I don't know. I, I find that just to be a really, it's both kind of a confirmation of how much stuff you can do on the open source side. Um, but just also like a really nice reality check because it's good to have different groups of smart people all looking at the same problem. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, open source. And I guess what I'm trying to do is just to, you know, make sure that people have the right idea about this kind of missile, um, that we don't, you know, we, that we finally do away with some of that uncalled for optimism. About, about where they are and where they're going with their program. So definitely it's something that I try to do too. <laughs> let's talk about the RV. Well, let's talk about the shroud and, and what might be underneath yeah. that. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the KN-20s shrouds, RV, nose cap, because there's a lot going on with this that's not... The data on this is very curious from the imagery side and very hard to track. Right. And very weird. Yeah, so what the, do you think it is? telemetry side. Yeah, just all around weird. And I guess yeah. things got a little weirder. We were talking about optimism with the South Korean reports that the RV just wasn't good, that it didn't perform to where an yeah. ICBM RV would need to perform. It's amazing um, so, how the South Korean intelligence is so good at ferreting out every single detail that just perfectly confirms what they want to be true. Right, right. You know, it's almost yeah, like, like they're they making under, it up. Yeah, it's like they could be under attack and be like, well, the accuracy of that missile could have been a little better. You know, I got um, in so much trouble. A reporter asked me, how will we, how will we know when North Korea uh, has a missile that can strike the United States? I was like, there will be a flash of light. <laughs> <laughs> Moment yeah. later, the blast wave will hit. Yeah, sorry. You should have gone with the, 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 the pun option there. There'll be a flash of realization, and then it'll hit you. <laughs> oh, that's good. That, that, that is good. You should write headlines, Scott. Um, <laughs> sorry. So what, what um, yeah, the South Koreans said that the RV didn't work, but you don't think that that's true. Well, no. I mean, so it, it, it's, again, you know, this is very early data. Um, but basically, I think that the South Korean assessment is really rosy based on, um, based on I guess, you know, early, early assessments um, over, over here in the United States. Um, the RV, 
um, probably survived to a kilometer altitude at least in a in a shape where you know the detonation mechanism would still work and they'd be able to deliver an airburst, um, which I think is probably good enough for the kind of devices that they're working with. Is that right? I, I would certainly think so. I mean, yeah. it's going to be an airburst. You're not going to. I mean, you can't lay down an ICBM warhead, so you you got to pop it in the air and. Uh, you know, I forget what the um for the for the twenty kiloton blast we wanted to do twenty four hundred feet, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for Hiroshima, and that's you know pretty close to where we need to be. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, you know, so the, uh, so that suggests to me that if they're even if they're not even if the North Koreans aren't happy with the performance they observed with this test on July fourth. Um, there will be more tests, right? I mean, they are going to, you know, maybe experiment with heavier payloads. That's a question. Again, we don't really know what kind of payload they use for this thing. Um, but also, you know, they have been kind of hinting at this larger, heavy nuclear device that they're going to test. And looking at the size of that shroud, we have, you know, no idea what the RV shape itself is. Except, you know, we have seen a lot of North Korean designs on that. Um, but you know they could, they could end up. You know, they could do more of these tests in in the second half of 2017, is what I'm saying. And and a lot of them might be focused on the RV because one of the ideas that I had with this Hwasong 12, I mean, apart from being the test bed for the first stage of the of the Hwasong 14, it would have. Uh, you know, if you shoot that at a lofted angle, you're going to simulate um, reentry speeds and temperatures that might not be quite as long as what an ICBM would experience, but again, give you some really good data on uh, on what you need to actually move forward with. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of, you know, if I had to preview the second half of the year, that's kind of what I'm expecting. I don't know if you guys agree with that or have any quibbles. No, I think that's about, that's, that's about what we're looking for. And I realize we should probably walk it back real quick. Um, we should talk about what a shroud and an RV are. I realize we sort of buried the, the definitions on that a little bit, um, just for, for listeners, because this is like a very specific thing. Sure. Uh, that we haven't really talked about this episode. So a, an RV is a reentry vehicle. It's just you know the part of the part of the missile that's actually going to scream through the atmosphere carrying a detonation mechanism. Uh, and a shroud refers to the it's just a covering for a reentry vehicle or or a telemetry package and testing equipment or something else that detaches from the missile after it's outside of the atmosphere. Usually, jets off and just goes out of the way, revealing the inside of they're revealing the payload. It's similar to if people focus on space launch vehicles. It's similar to a fairing, but for war. It's a war fairing. <laughs> One of the weird things with this is is when the missile when we first saw the the Hwasong 14's imagery, it looks it looked like kind of an RV to me, but doesn't really have the right I don't know, like coloration for something that can survive reentry if that makes sense. Like, it looks Mm -hmm. like a shroud. Yeah, it looks like a thin shell of stuff that will be discarded as it's going through space. Exactly. And guess what it is? It's a thin shell of stuff that got discarded in space. You could see it pop off in the video. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that real quick. Yeah, probably, because, Ankit, you put up, uh, I think yours was the tweet where I first saw that from that video, where there is, like, a split second, maybe, like, two or three frames from their video, where... The North Koreans put this, uh, a series of cameras on the Hwasong-14 for launch, and they got uh, footage of both first stage separation and the ejection of either the shroud or the yellow nose cap. Yeah, it looked like the nose cap, um, and it looked like they had small cameras in there, because you could kind of see the contours of where the nose cap would be. Right. Um but I don't. I don't think. I mean, I don't think I detected any actual sign of, you know, the shape of the payload or even a corner of what that might have been. Oh, um, I, I don't know if that was did visible. Not either. Yeah. So I mean, I think they just wanted to show us that they were working with a shroud and that they could, you know, they wanted to show us that the stages separated successfully because that's obviously uh, an important part of developing an ICBM like this. Um, and you know, this isn't the first time that they've sent us footage from um, from exoatmosphere. So uh, seems to be something that they're going to keep on doing. Yeah, they're quite proud of it. I mean, it's it's sort of the modern thing to do with one space launch vehicles or missiles is put cameras on it and put it on YouTube and yeah, GoPro will yeah. retweet it. Right. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, like you can do that now, right? Like it's not really yeah. that fancy. I mean, it's 
I it's like I don't know, like strap a strap a cell phone to it. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little yeah. bit facetious, but but cameras are really, I mean, it's yeah, you can do it. So obviously, the implication of a shroud is that oh, yeah. you've got more than just a warhead underneath. And you know, I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that the North Koreans have multiple warheads. I'm not. That's not poor Dave. Poor Dave was explaining that that's one thing you could do with a shroud. You know, and it became Schmirler says North Korean Mervs, which was he, he was not having a good day after that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, they are definitely giving themselves space for things like countermeasures um, or eventually uh, multiple warheads. I you know, so I I just I don't know about you guys. I don't know if there's any particular reason this test needed a shroud, but I kind of look at this as uh, a sign of a sign of things to come. Although, you know, maybe it had countermeasures. I mean, yeah. it could also be testing, since it is the first successful launch of, I think we talked about this a little bit on our, our ICBM pod, so I don't want to get too into just like what we've already talked about, but it, it, we, we don't know for sure that it would have to necessarily be a an RV test. Like, this is the first launch of that missile. This is um, isn't this the first launch of a missile that's reached that apogee for the North Koreans? Am I wrong on that? No, I don't have my apogee. Right. No, left. yeah, no. Um, that's this is so the they, cause they're, they're in... lofting everything. That's the highest. Longest is the highest, or actually, it's the other way around. It's highest is the longest. As far as I know, would be you know new ground for them, and so I'd be curious if it if instead of having something very operationally practical like a reentry vehicle, there is something more on the technology demonstrator end. Um, mm-hmm. Or something more towards, like, uh, I don't know, either dummy weights, which I guess could also have pretty important operational considerations, or just some sort of other, like, physics-based interest. Like, I don't I don't even know what to call it. Like, a telemetry package instead, basically. Yeah, and there's, like, you know, there's good, like, strategic and programmatic reasons they'd want to do that, right? Like, I mean, one of the simplest exactly. reasons to use a shroud is you just don't want people to see what's inside. And yeah. um, you, you might not be ready, and if your message after this is you're going to have a big concert and say that you're now deterring the mighty United States, um, you know, if you're not ready, then using a shroud and releasing a little bit of footage that kind of teases what the payload might be and then releasing a statement, but not actually showing off anything that suggests you have an actual, you know, fully performing reentry body um, lets you get away with that a bit. But again, you know, I think we're getting into kind of justifying some of the optimism about the RV's performance. And I think, you know, um, at least my assessment right now is that uh, the RV is probably, um, if not, if not perfect, or if not at a place where the North Koreans are happy, it's it's close to there. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to pick up is the comment you made, which the North Koreans have now said for both the Hwasong-12 and the Hwasong-14, uh, which is that it is designed to carry a large-sized heavy payload. Yeah. That's they have. not what they've been testing. <laughs> they've been testing compact, lightweight payloads. I don't like this. <laughs> What um you know just to just I guess clarify so we're all talking about the same thing like what what weights are you like what do you mean when you think about a large size heavy payload in terms of weight and and what you think they've been testing? So I think uh that the first test um based on a defector account that at the time I thought was crazy but actually seems to have held up pretty well. Um, I think the first test that was sort of disappointing for them was a thousand kilograms, and then the Defector said that future warheads would be closer to 500 kilograms. That's pretty consistent for what a state might do, particularly after five nuclear tests, and that would be consistent with the disco ball we saw Kim Jong-un pose with. So, you know, I'm I'm thinking that what they had been working on up until September, right, through the first five tests, was a compact device possibly boosted uh that was you know sort of 60 70 centimeters in diameter and 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 weighed a few hundred kilograms maybe maybe up to 500 kilograms and so when they start talking about large size heavy payloads um i'm wondering if then that compact device or something like it becomes the primary for what's going to be a thermonuclear weapon that yeah that i think 
is is the big question is if they go for a fully staged thermonuclear device test sometime soon. Um, and, you know, like you pointed out on the last pod, it hasn't been that long since their last test. And people have been kind of breathlessly staring at, at Pungiri waiting for waiting for that next earthquake. We actually just had a false alarm off the coast this past week <laughs> that I think freaked a few people out. But, you know, it was 500 kilometers under the ground and in the ocean. So definitely no nuclear test. We got back to what we were doing pretty quickly. Um, but But I think, you know, there's probably no reason they do it i mean the other the other reason is that they're happy with where they are with their with their packages and they're not testing and that also kind of you know sends a spooky message that you know we're we're happy with our boosted fission devices and we think we can probably get better performance out of them than we've demonstrated in these tests and you know we're gonna start putting them on missiles because they have been uh, deploying um you know like systems like the pukuk song 2 have gone into like mass production and they've been releasing kind of messaging that they're deploying these for for war and they've been doing salvo tests and things like that that kind of have been signaling that they want the Hwasong strategic forces to be on a war footing as quickly as possible um but again that could all be uh you know either a misdirection or just part of their signaling again they could be uh on the verge of doing more tests i think they will i do too i mean i when i look at the north korean program i have a tendency to analogize to the chinese program which is not perfect because there are real and important differences. Um, But I just kind of observe that there are a lot of strands of things they've done that are kind of similar. And, you know, the pace of testing has kind of, as it has picked up, has kind of approached the Chinese pace, which is, you know, usually one every year, sometimes two. Mm -hmm. Um, There may be years where it's a couple more than that. But there, there is a point, I think, at which this starts to be driven by technology and their own progress. You know, I think we used to think about North Korean nuclear tests like they were demonstrations, not really tests. Yeah. You know, like they had this capability and they chose when to show it off. Um, and and now I think we're actually in an era where, like, they can test more or less as frequently as they want to. Um, and so it's a different set of factors that cause them to want to test. Uh, and my my kind of favorite example of this with the Chinese is, you know, why did the Chinese test a thermonuclear weapon when they did? And the answer is because that's how long it took you Min to figure it out. Like, like they actually have like a story, like he was working really hard and he couldn't figure it out. And then like one day he figured it out. And, you know, so I think that there's probably going to be factors like that that start to drive the program. Like, like they know where they want to go but they have to make certain uh, milestones or solve certain problems. And, you know, sometimes they'll do that fast and, and sometimes they'll do that slow. Uh, and, and, and that's going to end up, like, driving their program. So maybe it's, like, I think it's a little bit... Uh, this is my way of saying, I think it's a little bit crazy to look at what is an active nuclear test site, observe that it's active, and predict that a test is coming. It's like, it's active. Yeah. And... They're always ready to test, and what's going to make them test is not, like, the vehicles driving around, but, like, these other things that are harder to see. Yeah. You know, if one of the teams loses the volleyball game, they get to test. But uh, if the other <laughs> one wins, they don't. Um, no, but, I, you know, I think, I think it's right. I mean, you know, like, I like thinking about this, this uh, strategy stuff and what this might be telling us about their signaling mechanism sometimes. But, you know, I mean, there is good evidence that they are a technology-driven program, like so many other early nuclear programs, right? I mean, especially with these missiles, we've seen, you know, a pretty pretty good pattern of a successful engine test followed by you know flight testing just a few weeks later and this is you know i'm thinking about the hwasong 1214 path here where they where they do a few tests get a successful test of the hwasong 12 and then you know in june they do that second stage test possibly and then um you see the icbm so i mean they're not really wasting time between like each of these stages and kind of waiting for the perfect moment to kind of show us a capability yes i mean the july 4th signaling was fun um, but, but, you know, I think, I think that's a fair point that they are, uh, like so many programs primarily div- driven by technology and doing things as they get to them and when they're ready to test and collect their data. I think that's, I think that's correct. Um, and one thing we talked about, you know, off pod discussing a little bit on pod is, is sort of the, the confusion we're having in data collection for the missile systems themselves on the designation end. Um, how, how much difficulty we've had not only managing, like, you know, the umpteen thousand different designations each system has, but now we've got sort of changing designations because we've gotten stuff wrong. Right. Um, I... Yeah, th- that's a huge source of frustration um, for me, I guess, as a 
as someone who writes about this stuff, and I guess as you guys who also track the stuff and write about it. Um, obviously, we talked about one of the examples most recently, which was the Can 17 What Is It drama in April. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a great example of the kind of the U.S. government can designation system just causing havoc. And the North Koreans, they don't make it easy sometimes. They don't give all of their missiles names immediately. Like the um, the KN-18, which is the maneuverable, uh, the terminal maneuverability scud that they tested at the end of May, um, I believe, you know, they just called it an ultra-precision scud. They didn't give it a nice right. name that we could use as a shorthand to refer to it. So then, you know, I liked finding out that the U.S. government was calling it KN-18, because I think that makes it easier to talk about it, especially on Twitter when you only have 140 characters. I'd rather say KN-18 than ultra-precision scud. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, on a more serious note, um, if you just kind of look back since February, we've seen kind of KNs 15 through 20 in just a period of like five months. Right. Which is pretty scary. And, uh, you know, I, I said this in um, this article I wrote with uh, Vipin Narang for um, War on the Rocks, but really, I mean, what they've shown us is like this brand new suite of kind of short, medium, intermediate, and intercontinental range missiles, right? It's, it's like a, they're just kind of showing us this whole new nuclear force. Um, so I'll just kind of go through the CAN numbers just to kind of disambiguate them for listeners because th- there was some confusion. Uh, so the CAN-15 yeah. is the Pukuksong-2 canister solid fuel medium-range ballistic missile that they first showed us in February and that entered uh, IOC and mass production in May after the second flight test. Um, and actually released some cool pictures of the ejection test for that system um, yeah. in, that, in that concert footage, uh, which, is, which is really neat. Uh, we haven't had that. CAN-16? This is coming out for the first time on this podcast, um, at least conclusively. Um, I think some South Korean reports have hinted at it. But the CAN-16 was seen at the parade, but since there was so much other stuff that was seen at the parade, I don't think the CAN-16 really got much attention. It was a, it was a new um, multiple rocket launch system, um, MRL, 240-millimeter guided shells. Um, and I, I believe the way you tell it apart in the parade footage is that it has uh, closed canisters. Uh, we'll put pictures of that up. I, I do have pictures of that one, just not identified as the uh, KN-16. So I'm going to go update all those files now. There you go. Uh, KN-17 is uh, the Bet Noir of April 2017. It is the Hwasong-12 IRBM, um, interme- uh, Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile. KN-18 is that new Scud with the control surfaces on the warhead. The KN-19, KN-19 was kind of a disappointment. It was the Kumsong-3 coastal defense cruise missile the integrated launcher with the caterpillar treads that they showed off Boo. that's the can 19 <laughs> yeah boring cruise missiles and rocket artillery oh yeah. i know oh but and no they're not rocket artillery the anymore they're close range ballistic missiles scott yes it the almost, MRLS? almost makes Ugh. them sexy yeah it doesn't no it's, it doesn't it's <laughs> sorry go ahead Nice new term. And then uh, CAN-20 is the uh, is the new intercontinental range system. And I guess just for funsies, I can throw out the CAN-12, um, which I think is also floating around out there, but not um, not confirmed. It is, again, another MRL system that uses 122-millimeter guided rounds. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I think that I fills in a few one. of the gaps in in the CAN numbering system. But, you know, I mean, again, with the, with the Hwasong-14 ICBM test, one of the things that happened right after... So, like, you know, reporters cover stuff that they don't normally cover. Um, so a lot of reporters mm-hmm. who don't write about North Korea were assigned a story on North Korea after this ICBM test because it was big news, right? So a lot of them started Googling Hwasong-14. What is this missile that they tested? And obviously they come across, you know, great articles from Arms Control Wonk, everything uh, else, um, talking about Hwasong-14. That we saw a few years ago. It's not my um, fault. The, the Urimin no, Zokiri called it. Oh, I'm so bitter. <laughs> yeah, no, they called it that. Um, but apparently that report that um, Urimin Zokiri was talking about was actually talking about how the South Korean media had incorrectly identified it as the Hwasong-14. I believe that's what happened. So See, if you started searching like North Korean sources for the terms Hwasong-14 before this ICBM test, you'd find like that article that was talking about how the South Koreans had called what was really the Hwasong-13 Mod 2, the Hwasong-14. And then obviously that kind of ended up on Wikipedia, Global Security, all of those sources where people go to kind of get their missile information on a shoestring. Um, <sighs> once and a time, once upon a time, yeah. I, I used to be good at this. <laughs> but that's the story of uh, of the Hwasong-14. So from the North Korean perspective, the Hwasong-14 is new, even though in kind of Western open source stuff, we've been talking about the Hwasong-14 as if it's the KN-14, um, the KN-08 or Hwasong-13 Mod 2. Um, so I don't think that actually cleared anything up because I just said a bunch of gibberish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is now they, worse. There are people yeah, literally exactly. leaping from their windows, <laughs> screaming, <Yeah>. Hwasong! <laughs> 
yeah, end, end of the day, it's like the stuff just gets confusing. Just call the missiles what you think helps you make the most sense of it. And what helps you talk to other people who are studying these things, right? I mean, I kind of like, the KN20 is actually one of the KN designations I like to use because of the Hwasong 14 confusion. Um, but, you know, maybe with time, we will get more used to just calling this new ICBM the Hwasong 14 and pretending that the KN08 mod 2 just never existed because that seems to be what the North Koreans are doing. <laughs> I'm really impressed at their ability to start replicating the issues we had with uh, SS designations during the Cold War. Like, you know, how occasionally a canister would be swapped or like there'd be a very minor change that doesn't actually affect the missile. It would just affect uh, like a very minor basing mode thing and it'd get a whole new SS designation. And then like 10 years later, people would be like, well, we screwed that up. That's definitely wrong, and there are, what is it, there are like two SS-15s and like three SS-N5s. Uh, we're sorry. Good luck. So now yeah. I feel like we're starting to rapidly approach that in North Korea designations, because uh, I remember when the most frustrating thing was we didn't know what to call the Musudan, because it had too many names, none of which were yeah. immediately well-sourced. And yeah. there were only two Hwasongs we cared about, the five and the six. Well, you know, in a strange way, the other thing that the Hwasong 14, a.k.a. KN20 ICBM test gives us, is a chance to go revisit that, because we got a historical documentary. Well, we got a concert with a slideshow that hopefully precipitates a full documentary at some point. I'm, yeah, and that came out less than 24 hours before we're doing this podcast. I think that's worth putting out there. We yeah, so much data. I'm just shell-shocked. Um, yeah, Uncle and I were talking before this, like, there was not a lot of sleep. Uh, this, our, our friend Xu uh, Tianren over in Beijing started tweeting late last night where he's like, hey, has anyone looked through this concert that got posted today? Because the PowerPoint in the background is a pictorial history of their entire ballistic SAM and rocket artillery program, starting with Kim Il-sung yeah, in like incredible. the Kim Il-sung suit days. Like, man, that came out of nowhere. And so like, you know, I was up till about 2.30 before I finally called it. Um, there's a lot of stuff here. Yeah, we'll have to do a proper podcast on it. But do each of you have a favorite thing that you've seen in the documentary? I, I have a clear favorite. Well, my favorite, because I'm self-absorbed, was the Hwasong 12 test footage, because it's more evidence that I was right in April. <laughs> um, uh, nice. but, uh, You're I not half as self-absorbed as I am when you hear mine, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I mean that, was, that was just nice to have. Um, but the, the Pukuksong 2 canister, the ejection test stuff was pretty cool to see, too. Um, and I'm just like, you know, I mean, full disclosure, I'm just less familiar with kind of the early Kim Il-sung era, but I'm sure there's some gems there for uh, you guys that have been, you know, really living and breathing this for much longer than I have. There are, I feel like the Kim Jong-il ones actually have more interesting data because it's Kim Jong-il standing next to things he never, like, was really big on showing off compared to Kim Jong-un. Like, there's just a whole bunch of, and again, Xu Chan-ram put these up, a couple of these uh, screenshots up a couple months ago was, like, Kim Jong-un standing next to, like, KN08 variants with their engines shown you know, years ago that we just didn't catch because it looked like a pipe at the mm -hmm. time. Um, so I've really enjoyed seeing, like, Kim Jong... It's a, Really, it's a good opportunity to revive Kim Jong-il pointing at things, my favorite <laughs> Tumblr from undergrad. Um, but there's just a lot of good pictures of programmatic steps throughout the years. Like, we have, I think it's an unpainted Musadon with its grid fins covered. We have, like, what looks like maybe the Unha. We have unloaded tells with their firing tables we just have like a lot of pictures that are um basically cut up pieces of missiles that's really hard to get info on uh, anywhere Ooh. yeah i forgot to actually say what my real favorite was scott you Ooh, just reminded me um so at the parade this year we saw those two canistered beasts the one uh the oh, DF, yes the df31e mel and the topol m looking tell um by the way not to interrupt that... you but i love how yeah. you said df31e like df31 like but somebody yes. is actually going to start calling it the df31e oh yeah please don't do that please <laughs> don't. don't put that on wikipedia and then i'll have to start reporting <laughs> on why that's not right um sorry Go okay ahead. yeah i should be careful um no but so what was interesting is that this video that they also by the way put in chronological order which was very thoughtful of them um 
it, it showed us the it showed us um you know I, again i confirmed this was with scott because i thought i might have been kind of seeing things and that might have been some other canister possibly a, a canister test bed for something um but it was that mel it was that mel that we saw at the parade they showed that but there was no evidence that i saw in any of that uh concert footage of of the kind of the the wanchan based topol looking thing that we saw um, which I thought was interesting, because I don't know if that suggests that one of those is kind of a real thing that's been underway for a while now, and, and possibly seeing some kind of testing and development, and the other one was maybe just a mock-up at the parade. Um, but, you know, just a data point that I thought was actually really interesting. I don't have a good explanation for why that was the case yet. Yeah, I think that's a good choice for favorite picture, because that is, once again, like, that's the Ghost of Christmas future. Like, one day we will look back upon this concert and be like, do you remember where they sh- when they showed us they working on that Mel? Because, yeah, you're right. There, it's, it's a shop working on a canister. And that's... We were never going to see that otherwise unless they put that here, basically. Yeah, yeah. okay. And, you know, just to put it... Yeah, just to put it on the record for, I guess, when the Ghost of Christmas Future makes him or herself known, um, I, do, I do think that it's not totally crazy that they'll look to actually cold launch massive liquid missiles in the future. Which I mean, the Russians anybody will do. do it, yeah. Um, but do they do them from, um, have they done them from road mobile systems? I don't know. I have to go back and look. But they definitely do them out of silos, cold launch. Do, do, yes. Do, do, I, get, do I get to give my, my favorite one because it's really selfish? I was going to ask you. Yeah, I want to know what your favorite missile is, Jeffrey. Well, it's, it's so selfish. Or your favorite picture. So We can do both. When we did, we did this article, which we internally called Dude, Where's My Tell? Where we had like, I think, a few seconds of Kim Jong-il inside this weird-looking building, looking first at Scud's on tells and then looking at the KN-08 on tells. And we had this idea that the building was so weird that we could um, model the outside of it because of the unusual window placement, and then we could find it in a satellite photograph. And this is kind of the first really big integrated piece of work we did with geolocation. Uh, leading to computer models, leading to some kind of bit of, of analysis. And w- we ended up finding the building, which was felt like a minor miracle when we did it. But there was one question, which is this, it had this funny skylight that had been added right after they acquired the vehicles for the KN-08. And we thought that that's so they could add the erector mechanism. And so we have this computer model of the building and a computer model of the truck and a computer model of the missile and we show that this funny-shaped skylight is so that they can crank this thing up. And it's got to be, like, positioned just so in the building and moved around on casters. And it was this, like, crazy hypothesis we had, and we were, like, certain we were right, but nonetheless, it was sort of insane. And then they released a picture of the truck in that position with the, thing, with the missile erected inside the skylight. When they do stuff like that, you just got to think they're rewarding you. <laughs> I, I do kind of think, like, I mean, it, it sounds crazy, but it is such a picture that we desperately wanted to see. You know, it is almost like somebody in the propaganda ministry was like, eh, throw him a bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we ruined his I, vacation. Might as well. <laughs> can can I, we put something I, nice for Lewis in there? Yeah, yeah, I got I He's going to like this one. <laughs> I do like that original article that... that... Y'all were talking about naming Dude Where's My Tell would have been a great name for it. Y'all went with That Ain't My Truck, which sounds like the like second-gen knockoff of Dude Where's My Car, which I really like. Steven Schwartz actually came up with Dude Where's My Tell later. Credit where it's due, and he's funnier than I am, and I'm terrible at titles, yeah. but forever it will be Dude Where's My Tell. I guess another picture that was fun, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a podcast about that, about the picture dump, but but the Juan Chantel and its original paint job. Yeah. Yeah. Cherry red, baby. That's from that same visit, because that one was bright red in that short video I was just talking about, but you can barely see it because it's all the way at the end of the hall and the lighting is Mm -hmm. crap. And so for listeners, what this is, is for anyone who's been following this a long time, may remember the show notes. Yeah, listeners, check the show notes, the history of this. Just Google forestry truck acquired by North Korea. What's the designation? It's a it's a long Wan Chantel name, so I always forget this one. Um, 5120, uh, 51200? 51200, that sounds right. Um, the the Wan Chan, 50, Wan Chan he- Special Heavy Vehicles, 
uh, who provides lovely civilian use heavy vehicles for apparently forest, forestry, according to the PRC, and space launch vehicle support, and People's Liberation Armed Forces, uh, Rocket Forces, Tell support, sold... I think Panel of Experts, Panel of Experts, I think that's six. By the way, there are more than that. Yeah, that's that's a that's sort of where I was going with it. Is we have a number that is the official number, and it, that may not be the official number. Um, but so when those were originally sold, uh, it, someone started circulating the brochure from the Chinese company that built them. That is this cherry red, bright truck, special heavy chassis built for you know unusually heavy industrial applications. The North Koreans would eventually repaint it and, of course, modify it to carry a missile uh, done in lovely North Korean camouflage. But some of these pictures have it in its original red color, like the color it would have been made and sold in in China. Oh, and just one other side note that's relevant to this. Um, at the concert, um, you know, people were focused on the main slideshow screen, but actually on the sides, I think throughout most of it, especially towards the end, they have, um, again, I couldn't tell if this was maybe a cloned image, but they had four Hwasong, four, uh, uh, Hwasong 14 KN20s yeah. on, on these tells. I, I leaned towards that being a cloned image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, once again, man, first impression. Um, I also enjoyed that flanking the uh, video screen were two models of a missile, and the exhaust was illuminated as a light source. Uh -huh. It's very well. It's because the the Morinbong band launches your rocket, Scott. Guys, I was just going to bring up the fact that um, we never talked about why the Russians don't think the Hwasong 14 was an ICBM. Oh, well, let's oh talk God. about that. Yeah, let's talk about the Russians because this is a weird. This is a weird data point. We're all gonna f die. Cheery. The goal is to end on a happy note. You can't. That's why you're going to splice this in earlier, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Anke, you report you had an excellent article on the Diplomat, the one that revealed the KN20 designation to all of us, if I remember correctly, that the Russians were basically saying that this was not an ICBM test and are like pretty emphatic about it. Yeah, so that's what they're saying. Um, so here's the deal, right? North Korea said it launched an ICBM. The United States said it launched an ICBM. South Korea and Japan both said it launched an ICBM. China, as far as I can tell, noted relevant reports that they launched an ICBM, <laughs> but they didn't actually, no one from their government actually said the words intercontinental ballistic missile, as far as I know. Um, but that might have changed in the past couple of days, so don't quote me on that. Um, but the Russians just flat out denied that this wasn't an ICBM, and they actually said it was an intermediate range ballistic missile, but the Russians are using kind of the INF definition of that, anything between 500 kilometers to 5,500 kilometer range. So that is very strange because, um, you know, the Russians kind of have this history uh, that I think actually uh, Joshua Pollock had a great article on Arms Control Wonk where he kind of went through a bunch of statements that they've made like this in the past. Um, I think one of the Unha 2 launches, they said, um, you know, successfully delivered its payload into orbit when everybody else pretty much said it splashed down. There's a few other things they've done like this. Um, but the big question that I kind of got at in the article that I wrote was, you know, what is going on? And, you know, I mean, like full credit to you guys. I think the discussion that really informed that analysis was kind of first on Twitter where people were talking about, well, is their early warning system just crap and they just don't have the ISR to really gather any real data about these missiles? Did they miss the second stage of the Wasong 14? Um, and on the second stage point, there is an interesting data point that I got my hands on, which was that the uh, what the Russians said was the apogee of this supposed IRBM that they launched on July fourth. Uh, on July fourth was uh, five hundred and um, thirty-five kilometers, and what the United States measured as the actual apogee of the Hwasong 14's first stage was five hundred eighty-five kilometers. So there's a fifty-kilometer gap there, which I don't think is just a rounding error. Um, just suggests to me that the Russians are either working with equipment that just isn't isn't to par or they're doing something more nefarious here possibly misdirecting possibly stalling at the united nations on pyongyang's behalf but we have no evidence either way to really decide which of those hypotheses is uh is correct but scott i understand you've been doing some uh look uh you've been looking at their um their radars here right yeah i was um talking to pavel podvig on this because he is you know my go-to for for trusted Russian sort of strategic forces stuff um, on the capabilities of the radar, and I'm not going to pretend that I can speak Russian. Voronezh, Voronezh, um, their early warning system that's located in Yakutsk, 
out there, and I've been putting it into SDK to just sort of get a very rough draft model of what it looks like it should be able to see, because the I think the Russian Ministry of Defense released, you know, this graphic that shows how great the coverage of the range fan is, and that it covers, you know, everything and sees everything. But radars work in volume. They don't work in area. It's not a two, the world is not flat. There's a huge shadow produced by mountains and more importantly, just the curvature of the earth. And as far as I could tell, um, their early warning radar should have picked up, I mean, it should have picked up everything. So obviously there's already a weird aberration in the data there. But if they were looking at the first stage with a 535 kilometer apogee, they should have been able to see that first stage for a pretty short amount of time, maybe like two minutes, three minutes. I don't have an exact number because I'm not confident enough in the projection. Um, but that's it. Like They only would have seen it near its apogee. They wouldn't have seen it in boost. They wouldn't have seen it in terminal. They just yeah. would have seen like apogee slightly before apogee and slightly after. So we're looking at a pretty narrow frame in which they could actually see it. Whereas the Japanese with the Antipi 2 in Shiriki, South Korea presumably on the Antipi 2 running out of, um, man, I can never remember the, the name of the new THAAD site, uh, plus any, you know, AN spies hanging around on Aegis ships. And then, of course, we have early warning because we've got the, the Sibbers and the DSP constellation basically looking for this sort of thing in boost phase. I'm actually not familiar with Russian early warning IR satellites, because there may not be any left. I do not recall that offhand. I have that written down somewhere. But basically, the Russian ISR network, super not robust, should have still been able to see the full ICBM, like the second stage and the separation. So I don't know why they didn't. Yeah, um, it's not a small object, that second stage. It's not like a Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they missed the launch, the space launch in 2009. Yeah, which is a lot bigger. And, 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 you know, like at the time it was like, well, the radar that would have seen it wasn't there. And so there was kind of a lot of, um, exactly. uh, I would call it excuse making, you know, and then they kind of ended with, but, you know, there's now a new radar, so everything is probably fine now. But like, I don't know, like everything is not fine. And I, I know that there are some people who don't, there are some people who feel like this is just the Russians pretending they can't see things to scare us, but I, I mm -hmm. actually think they can't see things. Well, it's the this plays into my confirmation bias really badly. I'm not a Russia analyst, but it, I, this strikes me as like the most stereotypical problem with Russian strategic forces. I can't tell the difference between something not working and something being obscured. Well, so, you know, we have this um, track two meeting. Um, it's actually mm -hmm. a track one and a half, given the participants, uh, where we brought a bunch of Russians in to talk about their estimates of North Korea's nuclear program and missile program. And we gave an mm -hmm. open source presentation, you know, and, and just to like perfectly capture it, there was one Russian who insisted on taking a picture of every single slide. And we kept saying to him, no, 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 this is all open source. We'll send you the presentation later. And he would say, thank you. And then would continue taking pictures of each slide. <laughs> um, but the Russians straight up said, this is an open this is a an unclassified briefing of a classified report. Right? So they didn't even like mm. which is why they presumed that we were doing the same thing. Like that's what they were doing. And their analysis sucked. Like it was just terrible. Mm. Like mm. they don't believe that the North Koreans have nuclear weapons. And part of that has to do with some unsavory assumptions about North Koreans. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of racism. There was a lot yeah. of racism in that room. I mean, we really yeah. were like, uh, I mean, uh, maybe, maybe we're annoying because we're nice liberals, but like, yeah, there's a lot of racism. Uh, there was at one point where somebody was like, well, they can't, you know, they can't make good bicycles. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, <sighs> that wasn't that Farid Zakaria's opinion on Saudi Arabia? Uh, it was cars. They, can't, they don't have a car industry. They so don't they have can't a make... car industry. Yeah. 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 That's what he said. So I don't know. You know, there is a famous, I, now I'm belaboring this, but there is a famous um, um, memoir by a Russian who was uh, a member of the delegation sent to China in the early 1960s. 
uh, and he recounts what it's like to be a scientist in uh, uh, communist China. And, you know, like, spoiler alert, he didn't think that the Chinese would ever be able to build nuclear weapons, which didn't age very well. So racism, it makes you stupid. Good, good data point to end on. <sighs> that's a that's a positive that's note. A happy Don't note. be racist. Don't, Don't be racist. Don't, Don't be racist. It makes you an idiot. It's like an after-school special arms control wonk episode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, Ankit, it was incredible uh, to sit down and be able to do this with you. Yeah, real fun, Jeffrey, and I'll uh, I'll bug you on Twitter. Ah, uh, please do, Scott. Yeah, yeah. How are things over on the Slack page? Uh, Slack is awesome. I may have incidentally DOSed our DPRK missile channel because I dumped all 180 pictures from that concert into the uh, missile channel and then left. Um, <laughs> so I'm really sorry about that, guys. But it's good because everyone got those. Uh, pictures. It's going real well. We're doing a bunch of imagery analytics, um, and now, like like we uh, talked about on and off pod, we have a video game Steam group going, and we occasionally play games together. So, in addition to regular wonkery, we got a nerdery thing going on too. It's great. I have a lot of fun there. For a mere three dollars a month, you can be part of our awesome wonky community. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Scott. Ankit, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Jeffrey. Scott, thanks for being with me. Always happy. And thank you for listening.